Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode number 296. Wow, I gotta stop counting these. Uh, very cool to uh, have our, our guest today, and it was really neat the last month uh, to have uh, all the ladies. We did a dedication in March to uh, Women's History Month. We had all female guests, and I thought that was really, really neat. The baseball season started and I have written columns and I have gone on radio shows about my concerns for this sport. And, you know, when I think about how to address them, I just want to do it intelligently. I don't want to do it like a fan. I want to talk like an observer and have an objective perspective. And today's guest is the perfect guy to do that. He's also part of a new project with the Marquee Sports Network that we're going to let him talk about because I saw his first episode and oh my God, he has some great, great guests on his show. Uh, he played Major League Baseball and, you know, I'll say this, when he was a player, he used to come on our old MLB radio show with the late, great Daryl Hamilton. Uh, we loved having Doug Glanville on all the time. Uh, he went on to do amazing things, but he was doing amazing things when he was still playing. Uh, so it's pretty remarkable uh, to see his accomplishments. I love his success, and I love that I've been able to stay in touch with the great Doug Glanville. Doug, welcome. It's great to see you and hear you again. <laughs> Seth, it is, it is great to, to reconnect. I mean, as you know, we kind of started way back in the original <laughs> day. Like, soon as I retired, uh, it was uh, we picked up where we left off. So uh, it's great to be here full circle. So, uh, yeah, let's have some fun here. It was really neat. Back in the day, let's let's start there. Back in the day, um, you would come on, but you were still playing. And what I was always taken aback by is whatever the issue of the day was, whether it was a societal issue or a baseball issue, or if it was an issue about a different game, we gravitated towards that less about whatever team you were playing for. You were on the Cubs, you were on the Phillies, I remember. And we it wasn't like, hey, the Phils have lost four in a row. What is the team <laughs> going to do? We never did that with you. It was always a bigger picture. Um, that was not just on our show. You did that all the time during your career. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I was a fan of the game really since birth. My brother, who's almost eight years older, uh, brought me into the game, but I also came from parents who my my mother, who is an educator, retired teacher. My father came from Trinidad and Tobago, started over at 31 as a freshman at Howard University, and so he had education background. Who ultimately went into psychiatry. So that those together always had this emphasis of having this global worldview and seeing things beyond sort of the the task at hand. And and so also growing up in a town that was at the front lines of desegregation, voluntarily doing so in the early 60s. Where was that? Where was that? For our audience? So Teaneck, New Jersey, um, yep. early 60s, voluntarily desegregated using a busing program for a sixth grade pilot program to integrate black and white students. So that's where I grew up. And there was a real commitment. It wasn't just like a punchline. It was really an inclusive effort. So all that kind of came together where I saw baseball as beyond just the sport, but a way to build relationships and relate to each other and work together from different walks of life. So it always had this feeling that it was, it was bigger than sport. Right. It was, it was always uh, remarkable. You started writing the New York times column though, when you were still playing, correct? It was, it was shortly after or was close to, I believe the first column was 
07. So I had retired in 05. But, um, but yeah, it came about because it was off the Mitchell report, which exposed the PDs and baseball. I remember. Yeah. And we did a bunch of episodes with uh, Eddie Dominguez, who, you know, um, we did a bunch of podcasts and uh, found out uh, the commissioner Manfred subscribes to sports with friends, which is such a nice (laughs) thing to know um, because Eddie uh, wrote that book, baseball cop. And I read it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And when, what I did on the podcast was I talked to Eddie because I knew Eddie from the rookie program back in the early 2000s, but the reporters, Christian Red and Terry Thompson, who are two of the best investigative journalists, they verified everything that was in that book. So I thought it added uh, gravitas to it. And Commissioner Manfred was not thrilled about that. And then when David Ortiz was shot, uh, uh, Eddie called me and said, you know that that was no accident. And I said, okay. And I put Eddie back on. And that was, I think, when Manfred wanted, he wanted to meet with me in March, 2020. I remember that. And because of COVID, we never, we never did. And then the sport had so many other issues. And I think now has so many other issues that I don't think it's a priority for him. And frankly, it's not a priority for me. Um, Rob Manfred and I used to go out for pizza after uh, the labor talks in 02. Remember 02, the almost strike. Oh, and, yeah, uh, I was there. He was a lawyer. <laughs> we used to have to camp out at Park Avenue and there was a pizza joint. And we used to go on a to, on pizza runs. That was that was that was how mm-hmm. I knew Rob Manfred. And mm-hmm. I always thought that Jimmy Lee Solomon, I said this a couple of episodes ago when he passed. Uh, I always thought Jimmy Lee Solomon was going to be the commissioner. That was the guy I kissed his ring. I didn't I didn't kiss Rob Manfred's ring. I never thought he'd be the, the, the commissioner. I never dawned on me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it is amazing, but he was, you know, he was number two, Bud Selig. And yeah. I was in, you know, some of those rooms and I remember O2 because it was last minute. I mean, there was planes on the tarmac getting ready to play, and we were yep. wondering if we were going on strike. So yep. yeah, it was some intense times for sure. So you uh you work with ESPN still. And you still do uh, the Marquee Sports Network, which is the Cubs network. Uh, Boog Shambi, of course, is, is over there. Um, uh, there are so many people o- over on Marquee that I adore. Not just know, but I adore uh, the, you know, Zach Zaidman's with the, uh, the Cubs radio network. Uh, he and I went to college together. Um, there's so many great people uh, with Marquee. How did they come up or did you come up with the new panel show, Classes in Session, and was that a marquee idea that you're doing or was that your idea that marquee is facilitating? Well, it really was kind of a partnership on it in terms of how it came about. I've been working on this concept forever. I mean, it's kind of my life, but it's the idea of sports and society intersection and how they intersect and just how it's led to conversations, change, protests, especially within the last, you know, for 18 months or so. So I was always, especially when it came to working at ESPN and always having to navigate really anywhere, the water is about sticking to sports and like, how do you balance these things out? So for many years, I've pitched Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, uh, Players Association about having a resource available to really dissect the sort of content behind the stories, behind the issues. So if we're talking about voter suppression, we're talking about policing, we'll actually have verified sources. And I, you know, volunteered to sort of be that kind of source. 
So these ideas have been out there and I made up many proposals and sent it to many people. Mm -hmm. The universities ended up teaching. And, and so I'm at UConn now teaching this course, right, Sport and right. Society. So with Marquis, we started sitting down. And at one point, you know, after a year of working at NBC, two years at NBC and then for the Cubs, and then uh, now with Marquis, they said, hey, you know, this, this could really work. You want to give it a shot. So that's how it came about. And it's, it's just gone really well. Love the guests. And we try to take a balanced perspective on how sport and society are inter intersecting on various issues and bringing guests to, to be sort of our teachers. And you had two of the best, Herm Edwards and Dusty, uh, yeah. on your premiere episode. And Dusty uh, uh, gave the eulogy at Daryl's funeral. I mean, uh, Dusty is salt of the earth. I mean, he's one of the most Go special ahead. people uh, in you know on this planet, let alone in the sport. Um, but I want to put a pin in that because you write you wrote up uh, voter suppression. What was your reaction when you saw that baseball had moved the All Star game? You know, dissecting it for a while, has it changed? No, it was it was a wow. It was it was truly a wow, and it it's mostly because although you know the the sport of Jackie Robinson and how pioneering that was, uh, it, baseball's sort of relegated itself to a certain degree behind every other sport to take these steps, right? And and maybe partly the demographic shift, the popularity shift, all these things have played a role. But mostly they just kind of see who puts the toe in the water and then baseball says, okay, let's, let's figure out where we play politically here. So they, they became pretty neutral, pretty non-confrontational and, and didn't really take on a lot of issues, but quietly. And there was not a lot of room left to be quiet on, you know, given how our politics had shifted, given how these issues are just so front and center. And that when sports were quiet, you know, over the pandemic, for a while, we kind of had to really reflect on where sports fit in our role in our lives. So yeah, to jump in, which was clearly had political waters. This wasn't like, hey, this is, you know, human rights, you know, we know that that's an aspect of it. But it's also knowing that it's directly related to a law passed by a it's state. A yeah, it's a fight. <laughs> so between yeah, sides. it's a fight. It's a fight. So but you know, I appreciate that. Because I know, you know, I've had numerous calls and discussions around the difference between standing for something and standing up for something and to really making sure you're informed and educated around the issues and bringing something to the table, to the discussion. And baseball certainly has a certain kind of cachet. Baseball, as I mentioned with Jackie Robinson legacy and taking stands after George Floyd to really do better on these issues. It's hard to do that in Atlanta with Hank Aaron's legacy and knowing that a law was passed that just makes it more difficult for specifically disproportionately certain people to vote and you know it was it would have been very inconsistent and then just imagine if they had the all-star game in atlanta how exactly would that go i don't know like you whether people protest boycott players sit out you know i mean it's, it's just like I, they also probably saw the writing on the wall and how tough that would be so sure there's a pragmatic side to it but i was you know so you asked how it's progressed i still feel a semblance of wow because i know this isn't going to go away. And they, you know, as I said earlier on, on, on my uh, show, they jumped into the deep end of the pool here. So they got to swim now. A model, model, model used to be a role model. We have a special announcement here to make on the show and it involves Spotify. How many of you have Spotify? 
You know, my daughter made us get Spotify because she wanted to listen to music. And then I found out something that really made me cool in my house. We are so excited to announce that Sports with Friends and my other podcast, Hall of Justice, is now available to stream free on Spotify. If you haven't tried listening there yet, it's free to download. Use Spotify on any device. It's a great listening experience. You go straight from listening to your favorite music, Prince, and switch right over to our podcast in the very same app. And when my phone is plugged into my car, my daughter can control the music with her app because we have the same account. Just search for our show, Sports with Friends, on Spotify and start listening free. And remember, it's totally free, even if you're not a premium member. My initial reaction was similar to yours, like, wow, uh, you know, I've never seen baseball take a stand like that. Uh, And I applaud the intention. Um, I think the intention is, is great. The two things that I noticed you know, I look at it from a media perspective and I noticed that baseball is not moving the needle. And this was an opportunity for them to do something that got people talking. If you look at the first two weeks of this baseball season, and I'll give a caveat to the, uh, the replay debacle the other day with the Phillies and the Braves, uh, ironic, the two big stories that registered beyond sports, beyond baseball people, was the all-star game moving and the inconsistency in Texas. And when I say inconsistency, look, they can do whatever the hell they want. I'm not, I'm not telling them they can't, but don't be hypocrites and say that game one, there's no social distancing, but game two, there is like, you're either safe or you're not like, don't, 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 you know, pussyfoot around it. My argument for the baseball idea was they are very conscious of how they are being talked about. And I thought this was to get on the Today Show as much as it was to take a stand. And I only because you're not seeing a lot of productions leaving Atlanta. You're seeing some. And baseball's in this weird spot where they weren't moving the needle. And that's what hurts them the most. Well, you know, what's what's tough, Seth, is, you know, where we are as a society around social media and and like you said, moving the needle. And, you know, it's, it sort of speaks to some of the challenges of the sport in general. If you're in an analytics real-time moment, right, in sports, in baseball in particular, but all sports really, and you ask yourself, well, what is the way, the tactical way to score the most points? You still have to ask what that actually means for the culture of the game. And, and so, you know, it's like I, in my class, I have Tony Blair's speech in, in, in England talking about the difference between generating heat and creating light, right? And, and I think in, in a lot of times the media approach is to just generate heat. I don't care how bad, good, controversial, I just want the controversy, I just want the edge and then have my platform. So the numbers make sense to say, here's your opportunity, now you gotta capitalize on it. But then you also have to figure out like what is actually the long-term approach. And most of the time, long-term, is boring, not sexy, slow, not tweetable, you know, but yes, it, it would be good if it's about voter suppression to go out and then educate about it, go around towns, go state by state, you know, there's a whole lot more you can do. 
And that's a, you have to take, that's why I said deep end of the pool. That's a big appetite. So okay. I do understand why these sports, you know, have to really think it through. And, but you talk, you know, people say a lot, right side of history and all these things long-term, but Jackie Robinson, what there was a tactical side, right? The Negro leagues were getting a lot of fans, the East West all-star game, all these things were happening. And they knew that there was something here to tap, but there was also a social experiment to a certain degree that I can't consciously look in the mirror as Ricky, you know, I'm paraphrasing and say like, you know, man's color really is dictating all this. This doesn't feel right, right? There's something wrong with that. And sometimes you could have the best of both worlds and taking a stand and, you know, being media savvy, I guess you could say. So it's, it's hard today. It is because people are going to immediately, you know, be on the attack and you're going to lose, you know, a lot of people or people will protest, but you know, that's, that's what's tough about taking a stand, but think about being a black player and, and going through all the things and experiences like, you know, to that end, to that end, then uh, one of the things that I have been working on recently and something that once we get a green light, I would reach out to you, of course, is I have a proposal for a docu-series, a, a podcast docu-series on the decline of the African-American baseball player. Um, you met and, and you referenced this twice and I, it's, it's what brought it to me. You know, you referenced Jackie Robinson twice, but in 1977, baseball was 38% black. And now I believe it's less than 6%. And you talk about, you know, protests and this idea of the docuseries was um, brought to my attention, talking to guys like Latroy Hawkins and Curtis Granderson and CC Sabathia. But it was also when I was at MLB, we had to do these uh, features, feature, you know, little featurettes for Jackie Robinson Day. And there were legitimate players that did not know why they were wearing 42. And I think there's a story there because the story is it's society, it's race, it's it's sports, it's baseball versus other sports. There's so much depth to why the numbers have gone the way they have. But that's why I, do, I, I, I found it so shocking that baseball of all sports was going to take this stand because the reality of it is, is the, the number of African-American players, not dark-skinned players, but African-American players is so infinitesimally smaller than when you played, but even before that. Well, you know, there's a couple of things. Jackie Robinson, when he went to spring training in Havana in 1947, the year he broke in, it became very clear that it was truly a color line. It wasn't a black American line, an African American line. It was a international color line. And by the way, racism and colorism and all that, that is a worldwide phenomenon. This is not just an American issue. We just have built systems around the enslavement of a people that still create beneficiaries, winners and losers, whatever, however you want to phrase it. So you have that issue of, you know, Jackie Robinson being kind of owned by the sort of American mentality when really he inspired people of Cuba and Panama and all over the world, knowing that there was this world that really drew a line. And America happened to codify it and, you know, one drop rules and all these things that have mm -hmm. existed in our history. Um, you know, so, but yes, the, the fact that black players you know, American players in this sort of decline, there's a lot of reasons. And I don't think there's an elegant, clear answer to why. 
I think you have a lot well, that's of the, that's what the docuseries right. is about. Like, right. there's I, so I many it, different angles. Of right. It. I mean, it's housing, it's resources, it's flight, it's suburbs, it's totally, it's totally. all kinds of th it's criminal justice reform. It's and everybody and you talk I, to has a right. different opinion. They have a different opinion, but but it, but all can be true. And which, by the way, is the is the complexity of race in America or racism in America, because when you're dealing with systems that operate sometimes in the shadows, it, it's hard to actually identify the causation, right? Okay, what is the real? Is it this? Is it that? And we are, as we get simpler in terms of, okay, I'm going to go throw it on Twitter. You're trying to distill something that's really complicated, just like what we're talking about. If we take a 30 second clip of this, can we really get, you know, at it's, that's how we are in, in information exchange. What I'd like to see, and it's sort of what I talked about with my class and my show and all these things, is trying to go deeper into the nuances and the different layers to it and hoping that there's more patience to the conversation. Because a lot of times patience is a, a big part of resolving things and actually moving forward. But when you get into these ideological wars about us versus them and blue versus red and gray, blah, 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 and all this back and forth, and you don't hear, very, very few of us are you know, monolithic in a way where we just check all these boxes and that's all we believe. We have a lot of, there's a lot of moderate spaces to have engagement over. So, so yes, you know, baseball is confronting this and there's efforts in the draft and they have programs and, and ambassadorships and things, the CELIG rule, they're trying to figure out how to engage. But as I wrote an article recently on ESPN.com about why I choose not to be a manager right now, even though I check quote all the boxes that are today's standards, right. you know, part of it is not just checking the box, but understanding what it means to live in that box, to really understand it. Like if I take a managerial job in whatever city USA, me deciding where to live in that whatever city is not a simple thing. It's not like, oh, these are nice houses. It's a good school. That's I'm just going to go there. I, it's not that simple because I've been stopped in the police in my own driveway before. I've been, so, you know, so I'm just saying that you re to really get past the box checking that we do to all of each other, it, you have to go deeper and, and it takes a lot of patience. And I'm hoping baseball will go deeper. I think they took a big step. And if nothing else, it's a huge conversation. But can you do the slow work behind it? That's the question. And, you know, you have to have a large appetite for it. I want to uh, move on to some some other topics in the time that we have. But um we remember uh, over the summer last year, you came on a show I was doing with a Tom Thomas, uh, the former basketball player. And he explained to me, he, he chilled me to my core. Um, he explained to me the conversation that you have to have with your kids about what you do when you get pulled over for whatever reason, uh, where you put your hands and what must be out before the officer comes out and your ID and I, like the way he he's very eloquent as well. Um, and he explained it and it really rocked me. I was because I can't apologize for this, but I don't have to have that conversation with my kids. I don't that that conversation doesn't exist with my children. And I just think, like you said, there's so many layers to it. Uh, it's not uh, open and, and shut. Um, you retired, you said in 2005. Right. You right. also do a podcast for The Athletic with Jason Stark. And Jason has been on this podcast uh, before. And Jason uh, gave me a stat in 2018 that 
scared me. <laughs> it really did. Uh, and Jason said, because I don't want to take credit for something that I didn't come up with, you know, and I, I have a, a Larry Stone stat, too, because these aren't mine. Um, <laughs> Jason said that in 2018, Major League Baseball had 11,000 less balls hit in play than 2008. Now, you've referenced Jackie Robinson. I'm not talking about Jackie Robinson's day. I'm not talking about even like we're not two old men sitting on our front porch, uh, uh, you know, looking at at, um, you know, Major League Baseball saying it was better in my day. Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and, and, and Hank Aaron. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I remember 2008. I covered 2008. That had a sport that was fundamentally different. And I have a Larry Stone statistic that I want to, to run by you. But before I do, when you hear something like that, because I'm sure Jason has said similar things to you on this podcast that, by the way, is fantastic. Um, what goes through your mind? What do you see? And how is this sustainable? It's, well, it's not surprising uh, because, you know, we were talking earlier about the role analytics plays today. Now it's always been part of baseball, which is part of what we love about baseball, I think in the data-driven world. But what has happened is it's, it works in real time now, right? You, your decision-making, the synthesization of like all the data that goes into throwing a pitch or shifting a defense, it's, it's happening in the game. It's become the game. And, and this sort of chess mass between data drives has really slowed it to a halt because home runs, strikeouts and walks are really the, the three outcomes that are prevalent now in the game. So therefore, none of those put the ball in play. And, and when they are in play and you have 15 guys on the right side of the infield, I mean, you're not getting, you're, you're not seeing action. You're not seeing hits. And look, it's, it's a natural progression for the game, especially in baseball, to look at the data and try to create, you know, a chance to win. Now we had Joe Madden on that very podcast who said, everybody has the same data and therefore everybody's producing the same car. And, I, and that's part of the problem with you, if you go back to 80s, 90s, whatever, where you had different teams had different styles. And if you were the Brewers, you were the Bashers and the, the Cardinals used the AstroTurf or, you know, you just had different styles of play and your community could own that. Now everybody's trying to outdata each other. And what happens is you create a very risk averse sport and everybody can connect to the idea that risk has excitement to it. The low percentage play even though you can't, you're not necessarily with a calculator is exciting, you know, get stretching that double into a triple stealing third with one out. But what I was saying, Oh, well, should we steal third? If you make it, you've increased your run probability by 20%. But if you get caught, your run probability went down by 40%. So 20, 40, then I'm not going to do it because my risk and reward don't align. So then you never do it. And that play disappears as does the hit and run, as does the bunt, as does the stolen base, as does the pitch out, as does things just, it's, it's almost like extinction. It's really like extinction. You, it, the, the play didn't adapt in the culture. So we're getting, these things are just going to fade away. And Theo Epstein was on our podcast saying that we've looked at, we've taken the information and people, when we pulled them on the declining things in baseball that you'd like to see that are exciting, they were doubles, like hustle doubles, triples and stolen bases. So yes, athletes, great athletes are on the field. We're not getting to see them. We're having eight minutes straight with no balls put in play. And that's a problem. It's, it's a problem ultimately, because 
you're, you're playing the numbers game. It's like the housing crisis. Someone figured out how to game the system. And while for a while, people just making a lot of money. We're like, ah, forget right. it. People are making money, whatever. I don't right. care about these uh, subprime lenders. I don't care about them. And then all of a sudden, eventually you bubble out and the game has to be adaptable. One quick story before I stop mentioning right. <laughs> Denver Nuggets had a game where they were down by two with time running out. They had a three on effectively zero. And Jamal Murray goes to the three-point line, pulls up, even though there's nobody back there, and then realizes, lets the defense catch up to him. Then he passes to another teammate who stops at the three-point line with time running out and then shoots a three and misses. I was like, what, what, what are we doing? Like, you, you could have just gone down the court and tied the game. But they're so programmed to shoot the three. Yep. And so that's what, so this is but not just a three has changed basketball, but it has not made basketball unwatchable. It's changed it. There are people who have the preference saying, I prefer the Charles Oakley big man, you know, right. you know, that, that, that idea. And, and, and I, and I get that. Um, let me give you the, the Larry stone number, because what I've noticed in the last two weeks is more media people that I follow on social media are catching on to something that I've been talking about for years. And I've known you and you've talked about this for years. And like I said, I've done these podcasts. Um, so if you're listening to this in the future, this is my standard sports with friends line. If you're listening to this in the future, do me a favor. Let me know how the flying car is and let me know how we get out of COVID. Cause that would be wonderful. Please uh, let me know. But if you're listening to this, when it was released, uh, there was a Tuesday night game between the white Sox and the Mariners. The White Sox beat the Mariners 10 to four in a nine inning game. Larry Stone writes, there were 83 total plate appearances in the game, 25 strikeouts, nine walks, one hit batter, three home runs. That's 46% of plate appearances resulted in no balls hit in play. And that game took three hours and 45 minutes. So not only is it slow, it's painstakingly slow. And those numbers to me are unsustainable in that this is not the steroid crisis. This is not the dead ball era. This is being taught at the minor league level. This is being taught by a lot of people. You mentioned managing and I don't want, I don't want you to be a manager in today's game because the managers today, the trend, and this is not to show Tori Lovello or Day or, or Craig Council or Alex Cora. These guys are younger than ever before. They are good communicators because they can relate to today's player and they're following instructions. You know, there was that guy in, in Washington. They, they were going to talk about firing the Nationals manager and they were like, why would he? He's doing everything they're asking him to do. What, what is, what, I'm throwing a lot at you, but what yeah, is but no, all but, this? But think, all right, okay, let's, let's talk about the steroid thing. They're connected. They're connected. All right, so what happened in the steroid crisis? Well, you, you come off of the strike and the lockouts and all these things, strike, and then you get the game back because McGuire and Sosa have their major race. People came out. They love the home run. Home runs are king. Then you have a generation, which, by the way, was my entire career, where everybody's trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. That was before launch angle, before analytics really drove but it. That was certain... before 11,000 less balls hit in play. Well, yeah, true. It was true. But that, that's where it was trending. That's where it was trending. McGuire wasn't exactly a contact hitter. I mean, Albert Pujols was you know, a freak of nature. The guy's amazing and made contact. But that's where it was going. They saw the rewards of the power game and the power pitching. And now 
radar guns, right? What happened? So some there's always precursors to when all 30 teams dive in and say, now I just have to beat you at this particular kind of game. So, so yeah, absolutely not having balls in play, but as you know, we're bringing Tom Murray, an ethicist who I love, he says, you reward what you value. You reward what you value. Simple. So until you change the value structure around it, whether it's economic or whatever, then you're, you're just going to keep rewarding it. You know, Bill James, a couple of years ago, I think it was a 20, going into the 2019 season, outlined that it was the first time in quite a significant amount of time that teams, the top 10 teams that struck out started to lose. They started to lose. For a while, it didn't matter. So like, oh, go ahead, strike out. You're still winning the division. So until you see the direct consequences, whether economic value, winning, all those things, it's really hard to change that culture. And, and you're not, and you're going to be very myopic about it because you're not going to look at like, Hey, fans are leaving or they're watching YouTube, TikTok videos instead, or whatever it is. That's, that's the crisis. And, but it's hard to feel it in real time when certain things are still looking, you know, good, right. You kind of can be very tunnel vision about it. So uh, I hope there's, I, I, there's effort. Theo Epstein, you know, they're, they're trying to do certain things, but um, it's going to take a lot to reverse it a lot. We'll get back to Sports with Friends in just a moment. But first, did you know that I have another podcast that I do? It's like Sports with Friends, but it's a little different. It's about the superhero sci-fi universe. I have been a fan of comic books, animation, movies. And when I started the Hall of Justice podcast, we wanted to do it for adults. Why did I name it the Hall of Justice? Because if you're old enough to know what the Hall of Justice is, you're our demographic. The idea of the show is to take the same passion that fans have for sports, but to bring it to the superhero genre. We have movie reviews where we spoil the movies. No worry, we warn you so that you can see it first. We also have celebrity guests where we interview actors, voice actors. The Hall of Justice podcast comes out every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think the numbers were going to predicate this proliferation of launch angle or did something like the shift lead to that? Because again, if you talk to anybody who's above 50 years old, they'll go, why don't they beat the shift? I don't understand. Why don't they beat the shift? And I get that. I understand it, but no incentive. What's the incentive of beating the shift if home runs right. are king? And, and, and a, you know, you mentioned Theo Epstein. The, Theo Epstein's such an interesting case. He left a franchise that had had success to address some of these issues, whereas Brian Cashman, and I, I don't want to give the whole background because I don't want to divert too far from the topic, but Brian Cashman said to me, not on a show, he said, my job is to win, not to entertain you. So the argument can be made that this boring way of playing baseball is better and that these teams are trying to win because there's a lot invested in these franchises and the franchise valuations are demanding that you do whatever it takes to win. So you right. could say, like let's corporate. change the sport, but how do you legislate this? Like, right. how do you, I, you can't expect that one team's going to wake up one day and just say, you know what, this launch angle stuff, it's not working for us. Right. Well, you're going to look at the other team and say, they're doing it They're, right. You know, it's like saying, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to do that when you, you face it, but look, it, this is how simple the game's culture could change. And Theo Epstein mentioned it in our podcast. He's like, if we move the fences back 75 feet, 
But if you just did that one thing, you have a completely different game. Mm -hmm. So that just tells you how much power there is in changing a culture. It, it's really that simple. And I'm not saying that's it's simple answer. It's just how quickly one thing can change things. You move the mound back five feet, whatever, right? So, so it, everybody has to get in that room like a declaration of independence to say, all right, here, this is what we're going to value. And we're going to take a beating for a little while, but, and maybe it's incremental. But, I, you know, but you also have to convince people, is it really broken or is people just freaking out and not adapting? Because you always have that too. You know, you have, you know, we, we always go over the data of the five, six kinds of fans. There's the sort of traditionalist, there's the futurist, there's the ones that only watch during the World Series. You have all different and, and they're all in fairly equal percentages. So, so you, you always have to ask that question. And if people keep saying, you know, baseball is boring, baseball, you know, it, it, then of course it becomes part of it. But I, as a player, certainly agree that who was always embarrassed to strike out at Dodger Stadium and have to take a monorail practically to get to the dugout, I didn't want to strike out. And I also wanted to put the ball in play and use my speed to put pressure on that. But does Jackie Robinson play in today's game? I don't know. He doesn't have the home runs. Maybe he becomes like a utility infielder. I, I don't know. One of the greatest players of all time. So, you know, is that a problem? I think it is. <laughs> I think it is because he's just a great player. Uh, but like I said, that you until you take the incentives, it's like anything we've just spoken about, racism, What until you take the incentives and really hit it head on, where people are still beneficiaries of certain systems, they are going to fight you tooth and nail, no matter how awful, evil, terrible, money-making, whatever. And, and, and that's what's hard about it, because in the end, there is a business in the shadow. One more, one more topic uh, that I wanted to address with you, uh, and that is, I think there is a two-pronged crisis at hand. The first crisis is December 1st, which is the CBA the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah. Um, I think that if the vaccinations go where we are, we get this herd immunity, whatever that is. However, we get back to some semblance of a normal life and we can have full stadiums in every part of the country. Um, and then you have a labor problem. Oh my God. Um, you think there was vitriol last summer that, that, that would be un, uh, you know, remarkable uh, to, to see how that would happen. My suggestion last year, because uh, I was on the heels of, I'm a huge NHL fan. And I was amazed that during the pandemic, during last summer, not only did the NHL basically say F you to America, moving their bubbles from Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Las Vegas to move them to Edmonton and Toronto and said, screw it, we can't trust you. Uh, they did that, and that was remarkable. And they extended their CBA with Don Fear, your old buddy, yeah. Don yeah. Fear, on the other side of uh, representing the players. Uh, they extended the CBA by four years uh, going in. And I had said, um, I said this publicly. I said it on radio, television, wherever I was asked. I said I would have chalked the, the 2020 season and blame it on COVID and lock yourselves in a room <laughs> quarantine for 14 days, whatever, whatever the rules were at the time, and don't come out without a collective bargaining agreement, because unlike the 2002 negotiation or the 94 negotiation that I researched extensively, this seems like a philosophical problem. They're they're talking about trying to um, chain you know, payroll slotting and 
arguments about openers and changing the way pitchers are, are, are being paid and all these different things. They have so much that they cannot agree on. I don't see how either side concedes enough to save this. And I think that's crisis part one. Um, crisis part two is, you know, I'm in my 40s. When I'm in my 70s, I don't know that any of the current 15-year-olds are going to give a crap. That's crisis two. But crisis one, what do you make of this? And how perilous does this really sound? Be your practical guy. Yeah. Be pragmatic here. Yeah, it's perilous. You're, you're 100% right. It is perilous. And uh, being part of the Players Association and being the union rep and the subcommittee, executive subcommittee for 10, almost 10 I years. I remember those days. You, you um, used to come yeah. on the show and the, you would always talk union stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's so... Look, I, I think they've had a, a legacy and a history of contentious debate. And most of the time, certainly through my career, it led to a labor stoppage. Now, actually, miraculously, that has not happened. But it's always in the public domain. It's very public. And I kind of wish that that would be a little less, uh, you know, poisonous, I guess I could say, in terms of how that's communicated. I don't think it endears them at all that, especially, as you said, what we're facing as a, as a society in a pandemic. And so it is perilous because if you end up not starting or all this, when you have an opportunity as baseball does associated with the spring and coming to life and you end up locking people out and that's going to be horrific for the game. Horrific. And, and so I, but, I, but once Tony again, better than I, don't, I do, you know, Tony Clark better than I do. You played with, you know, sure. or against yeah, and he was on the executive subcommittee with, with me in, in those late years with Don fear. Um, and yeah, Tony, but, but is he, does he know, he knows all of this. Like he's not a dumb guy, but he doesn't yeah, but, hate Manfred the way fear hated Sealy. So it's, yeah. it's different. It just well, seems like they're philosophically opposed. Well, I think, you know, you have different marching orders. You may have a personal relationship, but you have different marching orders about the, the 30 owners versus the constituents and the legal team. You know, Tony is not a lawyer or he's not a lawyer. He's not an attorney by trade. So you have, you have to consult and you have to have a panel of people that, you know, you can trust and figure that out. So there's always a filter that has to happen for Tony. And that's fine. He's a sh sharp guy, but it's a different type of battleground. And yes, they both are very aware but that doesn't mean that this could still be protracted, frustrating, embittering, and then all of a sudden now you're in a situation where games aren't starting. I, I don't know. I think it's going to be a battleground without a doubt. It's just how long it will take and how much public faith you might lose in the process. And it's not enough to say, well, you know, they'll come back because we don't know. We have less, we should have less confidence than ever about people coming back a certain way because first of all, it may not still be safe, as safe as it needs to be, to be fully open. So you have that problem. And then there's a lot more competing interests today than ever. You can sit at home, like, which we have, right? And just watch it sure. on video. I didn't like um, when Manfred, he did one interview during the World Series. I thought it was with USA Today, where the first thing out of his mouth was all the money they lost uh, <laughs> during, during 2020. And I just was like, yeah, but no one's talking about how much money you made in 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, 2015, like how far you want to go back. The dot-com alone was a financial boon for the owners. And, you know, just to think about um, what I can't, I, I can't hear, you know, I can't, 
I can't take seriously a, a, a poor owner. I mean, you know, like I never, that these owners, they, their, their valuations of these franchises are in the billions range. So we're not talking yeah. about, they're not eating oodles and noodles for dinner. And no, neither are the players for that matter. But right. I just see this one as being different than the past. And I, I've covered the past and I've seen the past. We were there, but I just remember uh, those being very simple. It was salary cap or no. Like that was, that was it. Yeah. This is very, very different. Well, it is different. And, and it's true. Salary cap is, you know, die on that hill players association. That's, that's how it, it was, will be. Right? That, that's all it but, was. But as you mentioned, it's just gotten more the, the complexities of it. I mean, even if you ex- extend sort of first amendment rights or, you know, the NFL or something, I mean, these are the existential things we're facing now. There's social issues and do you cancel games? You know, I mean, there's a lot more, and I don't think that's unusual as, as a society, we've gotten many more complexities to our society. So I, I, I don't feel like that's necessarily a negative that you have to take on more things and more responsibilities, but it is more things to fight over. And, and back to your point about, you know, the all-star game, it is, it's so much better when you could philosophically agree on, on what you stand for as an institution. And that is to say, Adam Silver in the NBA, when you have a certain kind of alignment and the players are with you and you re- reflect that, that makes a difference. And I, I do wish for baseball that they can get back to that place. Uh, but they've had a lot of renegades. I mean, Branch Rickey was a renegade, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, so, and they eventually came along. They eventually came along. It took 10 years, 11 years for some organizations. So, uh, but baseball, that to me would be the, the next step. And it's, it, I don't, it's going to be, they've shot themselves in the foot many times before. <laughs> so, and I've been, I've been on, I've been part of that, you know, so I, I know yeah. it's, it's not, it's not easy, uh, but you know, they, they cannot continue to rely on certain loyalties. You know, it's, it's just a different day now. And I hope they, they see that. I hope they do. Part two of the crisis though, deals with just the, you know, we talked about moving the needle and, yeah. you know, just to kind of bring this full circle. Um, I've had a joke uh, for radio stations and I tell radio stations come out of a commercial, a random commercial break with a random soundbite from Mike Trout and give a t-shirt to the first guy that can recognize his voice. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody would. And yet, yet, and you know, we talk about 2021, this is 2021. If I did the same experiment with Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Derek Jeter, David Ortiz, um, any of those guys they're household names you know um it seems like the stars of just a few years like jimmy rollins was a star like he was a star is there anyone on the phillies roster that's a star and you know that we talk about this ronald acuna jr who is uh, you know a super player i mean a superstar talent super, i i, I do not deny the talent that these young men have I just find that they don't resonate and that nobody knows who these guys are. There was the joke. Um, you remember the, during the NBA bubble, the Clippers player, uh, Lou Williams uh, got called, you know, he left the bubble to go to a funeral and wound up mm-hmm. hitting a sure. club. Totally. Right? You remember yep. that story? Yes, absolutely. The Marlins found out that six guys on the Marlins went to that same club. <laughs> and I talked to a Marlins official and I won't give his name out, and I said, I said, how come that took contract tracing, contact <laughs> tracing? And he said, they could have been in uniform and nobody would have known who they are. 
do you resonate, like you yeah, cover but, this sport so closely, but do you right. notice this? Yes. Like, well, look, there it's it's not okay. And I, I don't think it's all negative from the standpoint of what baseball has kind of been about. It is a national sport that's local. I mean, it really is a local, you know, and so, and, and there's a, if you go back in union history, as we talked about, it was about play for the name on the front, not the name on the back. And, and it was in the, it, the owner's best interest to not have mega stars from a popularity standpoint in a certain kind of way for oh. the negotiating. Cause yeah, try to negotiate against like Steph Curry, LeBron James, and who are about to walk out the door. Good luck, right? Good luck with that. Like, I'm not saying that the NBA owners don't win these victories, but it, there's a lot more power in a more concentrated way with FaceTime with smaller groups of players in the NBA. But kids Different. know who Kyrie right. they is. Know. You don't even have to right. say his last name. Right, exactly. No one knows but who Ronald Acuna right, but, Jr. is. Right, but the NBA is an enterprise. Okay, it's an enterprise where you have 12 players. Everybody, no helmets, no masks, no FaceTime. They are, it's a, it's a different sport. It's a different sport. But yes, could baseball market differently? Yes, but I, I do think that there's a there's a local component to it where Mike Trout is in wherever Anaheim, right? You know, and you have that. You know, would Mike Trout be in New York? But Mike Trout's also a very laid back was in dude. Seattle, Doug. Right, right, exactly, and and right, and he was iconic. And there's no doubt that that time frame. Once again, let's go back to the home runs. Let's not forget that. Okay, sure, what happened? Sure. We were in the middle of PED heaven, and people for a while knew Sosa and McGuire. They were on the front page of everything under the sun. Once again, we rewarded what we valued. And unfortunately, it was a devil in sheep's clothing, wolf in sheep's clothing, everything yeah, in sheep's yeah, yeah. clothing, right? So that's baseball's trajectory. And once you deal do a deal with the devil, I mean, it, it's hard to unsee that and undo that. So, but I don't think teams in general are as incentivized as basketball to put your face out there. And baseball, because it's every single day, and as Bill James just had in his almanac, he showed that even the best players really only contribute to the highest level for 27 games out of a season, because most of the time you can hit 350, but there's hundred games where you hit like 135. All right, so there's a lot of baseball where you're mediocre. Uh, I don't care if you're Ronald Acuna Jr. or whoever. That's a good point. So you know, so you have that. Those are the challenges. And, and once again, within what I'm saying is what we also love about the sport that the certain level of humility, a certain level of sort of chill because you get your head handed to you every other day and no matter how good you are. But is it a marketing problem? Absolutely. And Mike Trout has established as being one of the, he's going to go down as one of the greatest players of all time without a doubt. And people should know him and they need to do a better they job should. of that for sure. <laughs> they should. They don't. They should. But they don't. You know, I, I had said when he got hurt a couple of years ago, I had said, you know, his family's from New Jersey. And, you know, when you when a guy gets hurt and I'm saying this more for the audience than you, uh, there's a recovery period and then there's a rehab period. And I said that during his recovery, I'm sure he went home to see his family. And once you find out that Mike Trout's in South Southern New Jersey, you get a big fancy limousine and you take him to Secaucus for a day and you literally put him on every one of your shows that you have. And then two days later, you send him up to Bristol, Connecticut, and you have him on all those shows that, you know, people are, are you know, whatever watching and, and, and do that. And I just thought it was a missed opportunity. And it's just, it, it's not to build Mike Trout's brand. It's to build, it's just to have somebody that we can root for. You know, we, people yeah. root for Naomi Osaka. Tennis is not, tennis is, 
a sport where people root for people for you, you have to have a reason. Yeah. It's not like your hometown fan, you know, it doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, yeah, well, base, but keep in mind, Seth, baseball, you are literally a fungible asset. You're literally a depreciating asset. Yep. And, and in the system today, which we just described analytically, that's all, all the more true. You're, you're a cog in a system that works a certain way when you are pl plugged into the right scenario. And so that makes you very disposable on a certain level. Even someone like Mike Trout, who, who will age at some point and be like, oh, whatever, you know, you, you're gone. So, you, you know, you, you, you have a problem with that. And yeah, tennis was personalities, Bjorn Borg versus Jimmy Connors and McEnroe and all these cats. And, and baseball just does not have that. And some of that is absolutely intentional, but some of it is actually how the game kind of operates, especially now with, with the data drive. So, I, you know, I don't know what we answer. I guess part of it is, yes, people should know Mike Trout, no doubt. Uh, certainly sports fans, but you know, they should also know if you're from New Jersey, you should know Senator Cory Booker too. Like you should know, like there's a lot of people you should know about what we're dealing with in our country. Right. So, so uh, I, I appreciate baseball's humility. I do. I just think uh, they need to find a way to celebrate people like Trout because he is a great, a great guy. And he's, he's a phenomenal legendary player, Otani and so on. Oh, totally. Right. Like I said, must watch TV. You, you, could, sell TV. It. you could sell it. It's, it's just, I don't know that it's, it's getting sold. Um, Cory Booker, you referenced uh, the highest ranking government official that follows me on Twitter. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <I love that. laughs> he uh, I used to work for the New Jersey Nets and when he was the mayor of Newark and we did a couple of radio shows together and he's awesome. <laughs> he's such a cool guy. And we connected back then. And now he's, you know, he's up, you know, he was, I was watching a presidential debate and I'm like, holy crap, that guy. And my, my wife's like, aren't you listening to what he's saying? I go, I don't care what he's saying. He follows me on Twitter. <laughs> I know that's how Twitter works. I have some, you know, I, I like take screenshots of some yep, people. Yep. Uh, like, yeah. I can't believe it. Right. Right. <laughs> so fun. All right. You have you, Marquee. Yes. The Marquee show, uh, which is called class yes. is in session you have the podcast with jason which Starkville. you can get where wherever <laughs> wherever you can get podcasts right yeah anywhere if you yep. can hear this show you can hear starkville <laughs> uh, you have you have the espn work you you, yep. you also still write for the times well yeah i don't it's not recurring but whatever okay. yes i write i write for everybody these days so. okay <laughs> and, and and you're an adjunct professor and you're an author of a book. Um, I mean, Doug, your accomplishments. I just I, I was proud to know you then. And now to see how you've ascended is is truly remarkable. Thank you for giving me some time here on, on a podcast and to have a podcast called Sports with Friends and to not have Doug Glanville on it is just a crime. <laughs> oh, thanks, Seth. I mean, you were there when I started all this in my basement, basically. So I yeah. uh, really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, and probably my best title is, you know, husband and, and dad to four. So I just, uh, <laughs> that's what keeps me focused going, make sure I make, try to fight for a better world where we include everyone at the table. So yeah, man, I appreciate it. And I, I'm just going to keep going and do do what I do. How can people find you online? Oh, really? I love Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. So it's just my name at Doug Glanville. One word, no underscores, just D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. And uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm on Facebook, but Twitter's my, my thing, Instagram. 
And I do have a website, DougGlanville.com. And, and I try to answer everything myself. It's not like some bot. I actually really take the time out. So, right. so I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your opinions. And hopefully, yeah, we just keep going. Well, and in sports with friends tradition, we can say if there's anything that during the course of this episode that you heard uh, that you had an issue with, do me a favor, reach out to Doug directly and leave me the hell out of it. (laughs) By all means, I welcome it. (laughs) Doug, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for doing this. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Seth. Thanks for having me. That's Doug Glanville. This is Sports with Friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We appreciate the ratings, the reviews, the whole thing. Uh, We'll be back next week with another edition as we get to the mighty 300th episode. We'll see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Count on grace, I'm gone. Forget reaching my phone. Because I promise I'll be gone for a while. When you see me again, I hope that you have been the kind of person that you really are now you got to get in straight how could i ever be late when you're my woman taking up my time